As we wind down from the hangover of the US elections, continue to fight against a global racism crisis, a global health crisis, millions of job losses that disproportionately affect a very particular demographic, there's no better time to chat to this week's guest, our first for season two of the Workplace Revolution with me, Sile Bolani. Thank you so much for your support and for making this podcast so successful in our first season in 2020. And I cannot wait to share the incredible conversations we'll be having this year. Today, I'm joined by Moradeo Adei, a consultant, writer, social worker, and an adjunct professor at Hunter College. As an equity and inclusion consultant, her focus is on providing tools to assist professionals in building anti-racist workplaces. She does this by facilitating discussions, coaching leaders, and offering training and knowledge sharing on inclusion, oppression, race, and equity. She aims to help leaders identify inclusion gaps in their companies and recommend solutions, training and education around oppression's impact on co company culture and business success. Moradeo is a licensed master social worker with a strong desire to cultivate inclusive and anti-oppressive workspaces through training and education. She has recently launched MYA Consulting Group to bring her deep expertise and knowledge of oppression, anti-racism and equity to startups and other corporate environments. At Hunter College, she runs the Practice Lab on Oppression with the purpose of introducing core anti-racist frameworks and approaches to the social work graduate students with the goal that students come away with skills for incorporating social justice models into their work and lives. Moradeo also works with the NADAP, where she she trains and educates aspiring social workers in care coordination with an emphasis on assisting clients with achieving their health and wellness goals. Moradeo, thank you so much for joining me on the Workplace Revolution. Thank you so much for having me. Now, just reading your profile, I mean, it's a, it's a mouthful. Um, but one thing, <laughs> one thing is consistent, and that is your commitment to to your work in in you know educating and training and keeping, make, ensuring that people are having the right conversations and developing the adequate solutions to address the issues of inequality that is race based in the workplace. Tell us a little bit about your your professional background and what led you down this particular path. Well, I would say when I was in my undergraduate career, I took a class called Social 119, which um, really started to cover and discuss oppression in a way that I had never had space to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and I was fascinated. And I actually became a, a trained facilitator and a teaching assistant um, working with the sociology department at Penn State. And there I learned how to facilitate group discussions on, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia. Um, and, you know, to be 18 and to have such, you know, rich uh, conversations, not only with my classmates, but also with uh, staff made me realize that I had always wanted to have space to have these conversations. I, the space was just never created. Mm. Um, so throughout my college career, I worked as a teaching assistant. I became a supervisor at uh, my senior year, training others who also wanted to have these conversations to be skilled at doing so and mm. be able to provide those spaces, not only in their professional lives, but in their personal lives. Mm. And then I moved to New York um, after receiving um, 
admission to Fordham University to get my master's in social work. I knew that I wanted to help people, but I also knew that I was fascinated by the human story. And I knew that whatever I did with my master's in social work, I just knew that I wanted to be impactful and I wanted to work with people in a real way. Mm. Um, I've been privileged to have a variety of experiences working in New York City. I worked in the Bronx for seven years. Um, I've worked with seriously mentally ill adults throughout the New York City area. I've worked with pregnant women and children. I've worked with adolescent boys um, in various settings like group homes, uh, clinics, um, uh, mobile crisis teams. Um, And I think that all that has informed my passion still to talk about the inequalities that exist, um, not only not only in the United States, but also um, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, five years ago, I had the opportunity to begin teaching at Hunter College uh, in a practice lab on oppression. And it was the first time that I had ever taught um, in my career. And as soon as I stepped in the classroom, I was in love. And I, you know, it has been my focus the last five years to incorporate all anti-racist education and training mm-hmm. um, and weave it into my my nine to five, which is supervising uh, interns from Hunter College, NYU, and Columbia, um, specifically first-year graduate students in school social work. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've realized about this profession is that people don't think that you know, white supremacy exists within the social work profession or that racism exists or that a social worker could be racist within a helping profession. Mm-hmm. And it's simply not true. And history has never said otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, if I'm going to train and teach social workers to um, become effective clinicians, they need to understand um, the history of this country um, and not the history that we're told in, in classrooms. Mm. Um, and I think that that has always driven my focus, um, whether it's, you know, beginning to consult and work with, you know, organizations who also are wanting to create more inclusive workspaces, but also to challenge students to not just move through your professional career being convinced that everything you've told about everything is true. Mm. It's really important for students to develop an inquisitiveness about everything, particularly about how we're talking about oppression. Mm. Um, And that has really been uh, my driving force and the reason why I get up in the morning. Mm, mm, Absolutely. Very, very relatable. Um, You know, one of the things that always stands out for me when we're speaking about addressing issues around oppression um, and around the race-based inequality and even the gender-based inequality that we're experiencing is largely due to um, the erasure that exists, right? And, you know, you mentioned what we're taught at school versus reality. And that's something that, you know, many of us can relate to. That's certainly the case here in South Africa. Um, and that we find ourselves when we want to have these conversations dealing with a lot of resistance because people insist on erasing the realities of what has actually happened in our history and then is still happening now um, and how it plays out in various different spaces in our lives, whether it's, you know, how we are treated in the workplace or how we are treated within the healthcare system, how we are treated by banking and financial institutions. What are some of the challenges that you have had when 
trying to have these these conversations in an effective way um, from from the perspective of the types of resistance or the reasoning behind the resistance that you may have um, you know interacted with I believe that I had to experience so much resistance initially when teaching particularly when it comes to being a black professor uh, teaching white students um, historically, um, there has been a lot of issues around uh, feeling that a black professor is as, uh, you know, well, well educated or pronounced or um, that everything that we're saying is valued. It's not treated the same way as a white professor. Mm -hmm. So I realized that a lot of the resistance was not only that I was in a position of power, but that I was really teaching someone that they had never been told before. Mm -hmm. And it's not stories from my own childhood. It's actually historical texts that were never included in, you know, the American history education system. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to work very hard with my mentors um, at Hunter College to combat that because at times it could be very, you know, invalidating. It can be very stressful, um, especially when, you know, as black people, we don't have access to some special, you know, amount of texts. These are things that exist within history books that all of us have access to. We are choosing actively to be ignorant mm -hmm. about our own history. And, and sometimes facing that can be very overwhelming for students mm -hmm. and can be very uh, triggering. Mm -hmm. And I think that I have, you know, over the years, gotten better at, you know, helping students work through those uncomfortable moments. Mm -hmm. And essentially, like, when you know better, you need to do better. Mm -hmm. So do not beat yourself up for what you've never been taught. But now that you know, it is on you. And you are responsible for um, making the change and making the impact. And part of that is really understanding the communities you're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. We A lot of our clientele in the social profession are marginalized folks. They're black and brown folks. You need to know the history of black and brown people in this country mm. and cannot rely on what you learned in ninth grade. Mm. It's just not good enough. And it, we're not going to, it's not going to be acceptable in order for it to be effective. Mm. I think also the resistance comes um, even within the workplace uh, because a lot of these nonprofits, particularly in the United States are run by uh, white men. Mm. So, you know, doing the DNI work, um, doing the DNI consulting requires that you know the folks in power to buy into this work in a real way, mm -hmm. so that we can actually make effective change. And that's not you know always the easiest thing, particularly if it means having to change entire systems. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we are encountering now, particularly after such a traumatic year that 2020 was that now it's really not about us as individuals it's about these systems that we need to dismantle mm, 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 absolutely now you do a lot of you focus a lot on anti-racist work and what does anti-racist mean to you and how is it that people can actually work to achieve that what i found in my work particularly Last summer, I can distinctly remember after the murder of George Floyd, you know, there was this rush to create, 
you know, spaces within workplaces around, you know, diversity. And there's an emphasis on diversity and inclusion. And we need to make committees and we need to, you know, create space to have these conversations. And none of these organizations had tools. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we're throwing the word diversity around a lot. But like, what does that mean? And what does that look like in these organizations? And to me, anti-racism is a combination of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. You need to have all three parts in order to make an anti-racist workspace. And that's what I teach organizations and give them the tools to go back to their um, higher ups and like, okay, these are these are actual tools that we can put in place so that we can start creating spaces that are more inclusive. And what I found even in my consulting work is people don't have the definitions for these words and we're throwing them around casually Mm -hmm. without actually knowing what it means or what it could do to impact an organization. Um, And I think that that has been my focus even within my own nonprofit organization that this is not a band-aid solution Mm -hmm. you you know creating a diversity inclusion committee for what reason who's on the committee Mm -hmm. what are the tasks of the committee what are the goals how will we know if the um inclusion practices are successful to me if you have not sat down and thought about a strategic plan then to me it's just uh it's just, it's just for show, Mm. you know, it's just to say that she did it. And I feel like as not only as, um, you know, as a social worker, but also as a black woman, that that is not something that is going to be acceptable for me any longer in the workplace or any space where I cannot be my fullest self. And part of this work and part of my focus is holding everyone accountable, not only individually, but also every organization that is saying that, okay, yes, we totally believe that Black Lives Matter. The work didn't stop after the summer ended. This work does not stop just because um, we have a new president and a new vice president. Mm. The work is ongoing. And if you're going to commit, then you need to really commit. Mm. Absolutely. So you mentioned something very interesting earlier around um, getting buy-in from the higher-ups. And that's often where a lot of resistance in organizations sits, higher-ups who are quite happy with the status quo, quite happy with the culture because it serves them and they benefit the most from it. What are the types of ways that people can begin to, you know, I guess, get that buy-in that is needed because we all have these conversations about social justice. You mentioned organizations posting about Black Lives Matter. I mean, we saw that globally. We saw how many companies were posting black boxes on Instagram. Everybody was starting in solidarity. Everybody was announcing new, we've now created a new department for diversity and inclusion and we've appointed a black woman or a woman of color or a black man because we are so serious about this. But how serious are we really you know so how do people practically because if i've now i've been recruited into an organization to head up diversity and inclusion and my heart is in the right place and this is the work that i'm passionate about um and i have these plans and strategies that i put together but how do i actually get the buy-in because it's it's buy-in for a culture change it's buy-in for budget allocation to implement whatever needs to be implemented but also buy-in to be able to be supported at every level of the organization for all of your initiatives to be implemented successfully how can people do that successfully 
I believe that if an organization has pledged, let's say since last summer, that they are focused on diversity and inclusion, they want to make changes within the organization, they've created this committee, and that's fine. They took all the initial steps. But understanding that in order for you as an organization to make changes, you have to admit that there are gaps. And what are the gaps? And if there is... Uh, an issue around company culture, is that something that we are willing to sit down and say, you know what, our culture isn't inclusive. And perhaps we need to call someone outside of this to come in, consult with us, which is what I do. And let's talk about where are the inclusion gaps within our company and how we can make changes. I also feel like even, I think it's great that there are DNI positions opening and that um, black men and women are are moving moving into those roles, but I do think that if that is the case, challenging the higher ups that this is something that we are doing collaboratively. Because in order for us to make long lasting change, it cannot be that just black and brown people care about racism. White people have to care about racism, and they have to be enraged by racism, and to make racism so unattractive and so you know horrendous that we all are agreeing that we all need to collectively fight it together and i feel like starting with companies who have said yes we want to create this committee okay that's fine if you're going to create it the diversity committee has to encompass what the company actually looks like so it can't be just the three black folks who work on the floor. It has to be um, different levels of the organization. You need to have people who are um, from the from the ground up. Like, for example, I work in a nonprofit. So to me, it should be direct service providers. It should be supervisors. It should be managers. And it should be um, any of the higher ups, whether it's the vice president um, or the president of the company, who at least is willing to come to, you know, trainings, uh, to have some input on activities that the DNI committee is putting on throughout the year um, and being an active voice within the company. I think that if you are going to work within a role that encompasses DNI, that challenging your organization to include um, everyone at some level in order to make lasting change. Mm. Absolutely. Now, 2020 was definitely um, a year like no other form many many of us um because on top of dealing with the usual challenges that come with with life that come with being black that come with um you know uh, living with economic inequality racial inequality um we now had to deal with a health crisis which pretty much just further exposed what black people have been saying all along which is that the inequality that we experience extends far beyond just being in the workplace. Racism is not something that we imagine. Um, the access to healthcare is a major issue. The quality of healthcare that black people receive has been really thrown into the spotlight when you look at, and particularly, you know, the, the, the demographic groups that have been most harshly affected by the coronavirus, particularly in the U.S. Um, and I mean, it's, 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 it's the same as South Africa, although South Africa, 
I mean, our population is predominantly black. So you would see the slant towards the black community, but even then it's disproportionately so. Um, so how do we begin to have these conversations in a meaningful way where we look at all of the various intersectionalities that exist and how race has an impact on every single touch point of our lives. If you think about from the moment you wake up to the time you come back home from whatever you've had to do, racism, structural inequality has will have touched you at pretty much every single point throughout the day. Well, I think that, um, you know, none of us have lived through a global pandemic um, and I think that we can all agree that coronavirus has been traumatic in a variety of ways, uh, not only um, from a health perspective, but I feel like as a Black person, having to deal with um, the racial unrest on top of a pandemic has been impossible at times, mm-hmm. um, while still trying to maintain um, you know, jobs and take care of families and things like that. I think that when we think about how to address the intersectionalities between race and, and healthcare um, and, you know, social justice, um, we have to look at history. Um, I actually spent the first six months of the pandemic doing extensive research on disaster management and education in the United States. Mm-hmm. And what is fascinating to me is that the average American does not understand what disaster management or crisis management looks like in the United States. They don't know who their, um, what their local governments are doing when it comes to any type of crisis. Um, you know, even just like, like a hurricane or, you know, a snowstorm, we, we just look to the news and we just trust that the news will tell us the truth. Mm-hmm. When we know that there, the commentary and the reports around COVID have never been consistent since March. Mm. We've never gotten through information around what the numbers look like, um, what populations are, you know, being affected um, at a rapid rate. We've gotten misinformation from the beginning, which has caused a lot of confusion in an already stressful situation. But this is not the first time. If you look at Hurricane Katrina, the narrative was very similar. Mm. What we were being reported to from the uh, from our our government, our highest government, was not true. It would be talked a lot about, you know, the looting and um, how there was a lot of violence when in reality it was really just black people trying to survive a hurricane Mm -hmm. and not getting the assistance they needed in the time that they needed. And right now it's happening again. And to me in America, if nothing else, we are consistent in terms of history repeating itself. Mm -hmm. The way we respond to crisis is always the same. We don't know how we're reaching communities of color in terms of informing them around crises. We don't have plans on contingency plans on what to do if a crisis occurs. And as a result, we get coronavirus, which mm-hmm. is, in my opinion, it's egregious how poorly we have handled coronavirus in terms of informing the public to the point where governments across the states cannot agree about a mask mandate. If we had done what we needed to do in March, we would not be here. Mm. And unfortunately, it, it means it has cost, cost our country hundreds and thousands of lives for what? For what reason? And to me, it really just strengthened my belief that as individuals, we need to be 
informed. We need to be responsible and not think that the government is always going to tell us the truth Mm. because they're not. They're not going to tell us the truth. And in reality, black and brown people have been treated this way since we got here. So it's our responsibility to inform ourselves and be taking care of ourselves and our own community because no one is going to look out for us the way we look out for us. For us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what I have been thinking since, since March, that what did I not know even about my own government and that I know now? And mm-hmm. now that I know... What does that mean for my work? And that means that I expect my students to have the same level of, are you sure about that? Mm. Mm, I'm not sure. Question every single thing, everything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, the U.S. has recently inaugurated a new president and vice president. Um, and obviously it was a very different energy um within the country because you had you know lots of people saying finally some change you know something to instill a different kind of hope for us you know we're the, the past four years the trump years are finally over um the worst is over and you know people are kind of hopeful for a a, a future that will be inclusive of of their needs and and you know, all of the various gaps that they've had to deal with um, over the years as citizens of the United States. But we also are very aware of the fact that a lot of these issues have been in the system for centuries, and they're not exactly going to be turned around in four years. So as somebody who specializes in this work around anti-racism and oppression and inclusion, how would do you recommend that um, this government addresses the issue of the inequality that is so prevalent in the United States? I feel like there are so many different layers. And I feel like as a person who also watched the inauguration, I wouldn't, I would say that there was a sense of relief for sure. But to me, I just feel like it's the beginning of the work. Mm -hmm. This is just the beginning. And part of that is holding, holding everyone accountable in the way that they need to be held accountable. All of the folks who decided to storm the Capitol should be punished Mm -hmm. in the way that if they had been black, they would have been punished. And we're already seeing that there's been a lot of pardons Mm -hmm. for the, which to me is problematic because all of these things to your point is systemic so we've talked black people and brown people have talked for years about our justice system and how that it is unjust and that we are disproportionately incarcerated so to me this is like the beginning of you need to make an example of these folks that were going to be intolerant of this behavior and there needs to be more of an intolerance when it comes to racism. There, to me, there's not enough. Mm. It sounds great to put your black box up. It sounds great that you read White Fragility seven months ago. That doesn't mean anything. If you are not actively on a regular basis combating racism. Mm. And I feel like, yes, there is a lot of possibilities with this new presidency. But to me, it starts with holding the folks who stormed the Capitol accountable Mm -hmm. and really looking at what is going on with um 
homelessness in this country, what is going on with COVID-19 in this country, what's going on with student loans in this country. There are so many things. And, and you know, Biden, he came into a presidency that's going to be rough. There is a lot that he is, uh, that he has to unravel and unpack and fix. But I think that first and foremost, let's hold people accountable when they're doing something that we say as a group that is unequivocally wrong. And we're not doing that as a country. And I think that until that happens, until people are actually, you know, uh, until they get in trouble for things like not wearing a mask Mm -hmm. or not following mandates, it's always going to be this gray area. And to me, there can't be a gray area when it comes to racism. Mm -hmm. We have to be focused. We're not going to tolerate it. These are going to be the punishments. You are going to lose your job. You are going to lose your pension. You are going to lose, you know, all of these benefits that you've experienced as a white person, because now as a country, we're saying that we are not tolerating it. And I feel like as a government, you need to come in strong like that. We, and it's too, we spent too many years, particularly under Trump, where it was like racism never left but racism was running rampant in a way that we had never seen. Mm. I know that I had never seen in my lifetime to the point where now I am actually scared, you know, to leave my house or I am scared that something is going to happen to, you know, my family, Mm. um, just driving to work or, you know, getting lunch or things like that. We had never seen that before. Mm. And I think that now the intolerance has to be so profound that we need to make white people scared of racism again Mm. because they're not scared enough and my hope is that in the first six months of biden's presidency presidency we see some real change Mm. that will make me feel like okay maybe there maybe we do have uh some hope i feel cautiously optimistic right now Mm. um you mentioned um accountability quite a bit and i firmly agree with you um, if we look at it in the context of the workplace, uh, for a, a normal black or brown employee who works at a company that says that they are going to now be focusing extensively on diversity, equity, and inclusion because they want to create a, you know, a different culture that is inclusive of everyone, how can they hold their organizations and the organization's leaders accountable? I think that what I've learned about this work in myself, particularly after last summer, is that I think as a Black employee, there's always a level of fear of um, of getting in trouble mm. for being honest, mm. especially about how we've been mistreated within the workplace. And I think that what my unlearning over the summer was that I could not continue continue to operate in a space from a space of fear that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna receive consequences if I'm honest about how I'm feeling or I have to be quiet um, even though there you know I know that there's racism within the workplace um, and that I have been discriminated against uh, on more than one occasion and I think that the fear has to dissipate. Mm-hmm. in order for us to really hold our higher-ups accountable. And I know that that is not easy, and it that certainly has not been easy for me, um, but I think that it also has been very freeing for me to just not be scared anymore about 
what could happen because the reason why we're here or, or even that we're starting to have these conversations is because a lot of us have experienced this not only you know in nonprofit but in like the corporate setting and the medical setting and all of these different places where people are you know they have a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. and if we're not standing up for ourselves, how can we stand up for those who don't, who can't advocate for themselves or who are not in a position to advocate for themselves? And I do think that all of us have a level of power that we may or may not have tapped into because of fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that in order for us to come together, especially if an organization is saying, yes, we want to hear from you, we want to make these changes, that is our signal to be like, okay, well, since you asked for it, these are the problems that I'm seeing in the company. This is how I have experienced, you know, microaggressions in the workplace or discrimination in the workplace. Um, this is what, you know, stresses me out um, and that I can't come as my fullest self at work. Mm-hmm. Like for me, the biggest thing was that I used to, um, I was never called by my full name in the workspace. And I realized that part of that was, was erasure of you know my identity and who I was mm-hmm. and I got tired of shortening my name to you know appease you know my white colleagues and I was like actually my name is Moradeo and I feel like if you can say all the names of the Game of Thrones characters mm-hmm. you can say my first name mm-hmm. and that is what my name is and for me that was almost like the beginning of um my journey now into doing this work in a, a more uh, a more intentional way, I would mm. say. Mm. Why do you believe it's important for organizations to do this work um, in addressing inequality and driving inclusive cultures? I think in general, we have statistics that support the fact that having a more diverse and multicultural workspace really enhances a company, really drives revenue, um, really ensures more success. But I think as if we're not even talking about the financial benefits, I just think that in general, if we think about the inception of, of America, America was built on the black on the backs of blacks and brown folks all of our culture is enriched by us so to me it's like in order to make america the the image that we all want it to be which is this space that is you know the land of the free the land of the opportunity that has to be the opportunity that is available to everyone it cannot be just available to those who are affluent to those who are white to those who are in power because Ultimately, when we're also talking about anti-racism, we're also talking about equity. Mm. And we're talking about equity that should be applicable to everyone, regardless of their stance in, regardless of their position in the organization. And I think that as a company, if you're saying that you believe in diversity, inclusion, and equity, and that all these things are, that all of us are, should be allotted that and that all of us deserve that, then that means that you need to have folks within your workspace that represent all that America is or mm-hmm. all that, that not even America, all that the world is. And the world is not just white. Mm-hmm. White people are not just, you know, the, um, the thing to strive to. And I think that that 
has to, I think also even as black folks, when we think about where we're even uh, positioning ourselves within companies, we need to be more intentional about the kind of organization you want to work for. Mm-hmm. Because you want to work for an organization that believes in these values and is actively trying to dismantle these systems that do not allow for all of us to experience um, equity within the workplace. Mm-hmm. And if your company does not do that or are not willing to make those changes, then I do think that it's there is space for you to create your own lane or to move to another organization that is that it, you know embodies those values. I do credit everything that happened last summer, particularly the difficulties I experienced within my own organization to starting my consulting group. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was my push, that if I can't find what I need and what I deserve within my own organization, I will ensure that other organizations who are committed to this work have the tools and education to make long lasting changes to promote inclusion in an intentional way. Mm. And how can leaders um, become more sensitized to their own um, I guess how they they potentially perpetuate um, these cycles in the workplace how can they begin to be more reflective honestly so with themselves um, about their own behaviors how they show up in the workplace and how it impacts on the culture within the organization I do think that at this time there are so many uh, you know online courses um, and folks who are also passionate about this work who are providing um, education and tools for leaders who want to create inclusive workspaces but may or may not know how. Uh, for example, there's an anti-racism educator that I follow, um, Mira Stern on LinkedIn, who's an equity impact uh, consultant, but she actually provides a lot of webinars on how to educate um, white people in leadership who want to, you know, dismantle these systems and actually um, address what, you know, what white privilege looks like, what um, power and privilege looks like, um, and how that manifests within the workplace and how they can make space uh, for their colleagues of color. And I think that that, to me, is so indicative of the work that the potential changes that we can make. There are white folks who are doing this work as well, who are making space for other white folks to talk about, look, we do experience a lot of privilege within this country. We do have a lot of power, but it is our responsibility to work within our organizations to make them more um, inclusive. And if we're serious about this work, then like, this is the the homework, this is the reading, this is, you know, how we need to educate ourselves in order to be effective. Um, there's also the People's Institute of Undoing Racism. And they also have webinars and workshops throughout the year. Um, for those folks who also are not familiar with um, these, this language, um, and want to learn more about how to bring in t- tools and education to create uh, more an anti-racist workspace. So I do think that there's a lot right now because we're all working from home. This is a unique opportunity for us to utilize the internet in a way that we never have in 
order to also teach. And um, like I said, I teach this practice lab on oppression and I did all of it virtually last summer. And I find that I tell my students like, look, you're home and you have literally the internet and the world at your fingertips. If you want tools, there are people to provide these tools. Um, if you work for organizations and you don't know where to start, there is so much information being disseminated, not only last summer, but throughout um, you know, this, this pandemic that you have access to. You just need to tap into it. Mm, absolutely agree. Um, so for people who would love to connect with you online um, or to you know find out more about your work, where would they be able to find you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Morde O'Day on LinkedIn. Um, you can follow me on my site, which is anopensecret.com. That's one word. And you can read about uh, the articles that I've written. I've done a lot of uh, interviews with activists and other social work professionals who are doing this work not only within their organizations, but also um, on the ground. Mm. Um, in addition to links to... Uh, my webinar on building an anti-racist workspace, um, in addition to my contact information, if you're interested in hiring me to do some consulting for your organization. Thank you. Now, this work, this work in, in, in educating people around issues of racism, etc., is incredibly strenuous because you're dealing with a whole, whole lot of different issues and elements, different personalities, um you know and 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 the conversations can are often very very heavy very emotionally strenuous um and we find ourselves being pulled in all sorts of directions how do you take care of yourself in the midst of all of that i have a very strict self-care routine i would say it's probably more strict now because of the pandemic honestly but uh i work out four times a week um, with a trainer. I meditate regularly. Um, I also... I mean, I do a lot of reading in general, but um, honestly, really bad reality TV <laughs> helps me relax after having heavy conversations. <laughs> and I also love uh, skincare. So like Saturday nights, I'm usually doing like a face mask and like a foot mask. I'll get my nails done. I'll binge watch. Right now I'm watching Love Island. It's very good. <laughs> um, but all of those things on a regular basis, including also getting a lot of sleep, um, is what helps to keep me going and being able to be present in all of these different spaces. Like you said, you know, I do have wear a lot of hats. But it's important for me to be as present as possible in all of those hats mm. in order to continue to be effective. And that only happens if I take um, good care of myself. Mm, absolutely. That's a, such an important part of the process. Moradeo, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for all of the knowledge that you have shared and the work that you're doing. Um, because it certainly is going to take millions of yous and me's around the world to be able to really drive meaningful change and create a different world and a different experience for for marginalized groups like ourselves. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak to you this morning.
Thank you. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Workplace Revolution with me, Sihle Bolani. I will see you again next time. Thank you.